We're in Matthew chapter 26, verse 26. And uh, I'm assuming a very familiar passage to, uh, to most of us, if not all of us. Um, but I also, and I trust that um, that's good. And there will be many reminders that um, I, I don't suspect there will be much that is new that's revealed today, but that we will be strengthened and encouraged in our faith as, as the Lord's Supper was given to us to do. So uh, we're in Matthew 26. I'll invite you to stand with me for the reading of the Word of God. And I'll begin in verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. This is the word of Christ. You may be seated. Let's ask for the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, for the gifts, for the power, uh, for the instruction of your word. And we pray today as we look at this uh, very important and significant text that you would instruct us by it, uh, that you would give us a right understanding of of what you have given to us here, what you have called us to and commanded us to, and, and how we ought to understand it, and how we can apply it, how it can, how it can um, lead, uh, shape us today, that we would leave from here um, assured and, uh, and rejoicing in the salvation that we have in Christ. Amen. So today we're, we're, not, we're only going to be going to verse 30, but I wanted to include that last little portion because uh, I, I believe it's significant that you have the Lord's Supper, which is the, really just this, this reminder and assurance of the forgiveness of our sins in Christ and His death, that it's surrounded, the whole context is surrounded with, as last week we looked at Judas and his betrayal, and then, and then we look at the, all of the disciples who are going to fall away as well. Um, it ought to be uh, an encouragement to many of us as we come to, to this text today. As Matthew's focus is, has been turning towards the cross, we've been observing some of the preliminary preparations being made from, from different characters, different perspectives, some good, some bad, um, all the way from worshipful devotion to, to betrayal and, and everything in between. 
Jesus now prepares the disciples and the people of God hereafter for the proper remembrance and covenantal understanding in the years that would follow his fast approaching death. So in in some ways, Jesus, I mean, he's working in real time. um, And so he's, uh, so I mean, his death is yet to come in which this, everything that is being spoken of here will be ratified. But he's preparing a way in which for really the church, the people of God afterwards to look back to uh, his death and and his, his atoning sacrifice. And so first, just as we look at the setting again, I'll remind you, we're still in the, the context of the, uh, the, the previous passage we read of the first day of unleavened bread. And that term can be used depending on the context and how it's said. Um, here, it's meant to refer to uh, the Passover the, that's, uh, that's taking place. And here, Jesus is sharing the last Passover meal with his disciples. Which, which is taking place on Thursday evening. So Friday, is, so this is the night when Christ was betrayed and then he's going to be arrested and, and the trials are going to take place and Friday is going to be the day of, of the crucifixion. The day right before the, 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 the Sabbath day on Saturday. And so, uh, and of course again, yeah, so Jesus has revealed the disciples, one of them was, is about to betray him, right? This is, we're still in the, in the Passover meal here. The same context that we looked at last week and, and the shock that that would have brought to them. And, and, uh, and Judas, between Judas and Jesus, there's this understanding that he is, he is the one that will betray him. And, uh, and so here we come to this, this famous meal. And Jesus is going to explain the purpose and fulfillment of the Passover that they're having in the context of the New Testament or or New Covenant in which Jesus now establishes as the New Covenant ordinance which we will refer to today as the Lord's Supper or Communion. Um, So this is a big big turning point in history that that is being um, narrated to us here. And we'll see how from its old, uh, its old covenant roots up until this day and to the end of the age, it was all given from the beginning to the end uh, to point God's people to the atoning death of Jesus. That's uh, all the way from the Passover and the old covenant to the, the Lord's Supper now up until Christ returns. It's all pointing to the death of Christ. And of course, when the Lord first commanded the Israelites to keep the Passover, uh, it was to remember and celebrate, uh, in that context, it was to remember and celebrate the redemption of Israel from their bondage and slavery in Egypt. And uh, particularly, even more specifically, if you look, uh, you can turn there, I'm not, I, I won't be going there for the sake of time, but in Exodus chapter 12, in Exodus 12, particularly we see the deliverance of the Jewish firstborn sons. From the sword of the Lord, um, who by the blood of the Passover lamb sprinkled around the, the door frames of the houses, God would pass over their house, right? And he, would not, and he would not strike down the firstborn as he did all of the Egyptians and presumptively anyone who did not slaughter a lamb and, and sprinkle the blood on the door.
And so all of this, although they could not have known it at the time, ultimately, we know now, pointed forward to the eternal deliverance purchased by the blood of God's beloved uh, Son. I'm going to come back to this later, but 1 Corinthians 5.7, he says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And now Jesus marks for his disciples the final and perfect fulfillment and resolve of the Passover meal. While also instituting or installing the commemorative meal which would supersede the observance of the Passover. So something that, just for you to have a framework here, uh, this was the last Passover. Uh, this was the, the, the final legitimate Passover which God would require His people to, to keep. Yes, there's people who would keep the Passover afterwards, but this is, in terms of God's command and His requirement of His people, this was the last Passover Just like you and I, the the Jew is no longer required or commanded to keep the Passover. Rather, they are commanded to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to be baptized and walk in the perpetual observance of the Lord's Supper as instituted by the Messiah in today's passage. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been, past tense, uh, sacrificed. And so the Lord's Supper is a pinnacle uh, turning point in the redemptive history, not only of God's people, but of the entire world uh, in history, where the Old Covenant Passover commemorates the Lord's deliverance uh, from Egypt. And uh, so it's looking back to that deliverance from Egypt and pointing forwards to the Lord's eternal deliverance from sin and death in the death of His Son, Jesus. We now, in the Lord's Supper, we look back to our spiritual deliverance accomplished in the death of Christ in anticipation, we'll see, of the completion of our physical deliverance, which will find its final fulfillment in the return of Christ and the resurrection of our bodies. If, if anything, um, I, that's just, that puts it all in a nutshell for us, and I hope um, we'll, we'll just shed a light on uh, the, the Lord's Supper that we receive every, every week. In, to, understand, to be able to put it, what we do each week, like on the ground, the, 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 you know, the basics in the, the grand scheme and picture of what God is doing in redemptive history. And so we have here again both the last Passover and also the establishment of the first Lord's Supper to be kept until Christ returns which will culminate in the great marriage feast of the Lamb when Christ will, will drink again of the fruit of the vine, uh, bodily, physically, with us in the Father's kingdom on earth. And so it's uh, uh, just a, a glorious, encouraging, hope-filled uh, promise and um, uh, in, a, in a sense a sacrament that we are given here in, in the observance of the Lord's Supper. So first, it's, it's the very easy to follow the passage here. We're going to look at the, the bread and the, what it represents, then the, the wine and what that represents, and then uh, we will look at uh, how it points to 
Christ's return and us feasting with him in, in the, for all eternity in the Father's kingdom. So first, let's look at the bread. In verse 26, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples, and he said, Take, eat, this is my body. So, right, the, so the bread represents the body of Christ. We, we know this. Um, and, and then, as it is now, uh, bread was, is, was the staple food of society. And, um, I mean, Jesus taught us to pray, right? Give us this day our daily bread. And, and that was a reference much more broader than just bread itself, but our daily provision and sustenance uh, in the body. Uh, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Again, this bread was representative of, of what we live on in, the, in our bodies. And so in this, Jesus associates the eating of the bread with his own human and his own physical body for us to remember. And again, so it says, as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples. Um, now, I, this, isn't, this is just a side point, but I thought, why not? Why not pastor you and, and maybe this is the only, maybe I only needed to be corrected in this and rebuked in this. Um, I, I am weird in this way. But there is a, a, a side application to make here. Um, and that is that it is good for us to give thanks for our food. And uh, I have to confess to my family this week that I had, it, it's, I guess I wasn't brought up in the conventional, typical way of, uh, uh, in the faith to where I, to where I am now. And so I've always been uh, skeptical of tradition uh, and skeptical of like, why do we do what we do? And, uh, and so there was times when, so it wasn't that I, I, I wouldn't pray before meals um, out of just pure neglect, but it was like, there was a period in my life where I didn't really understand, like, is that, does scripture command us to pray before our meals, or do we just do that because we always do that? And is it good to do, just do things because we always do things? And, and, and so that's kind of what I've gone back and forth with that. I certain, I've always certainly seen it, it as being something that is fitting and right to do is to give thanks to God for anything at all times. Um, but to see it as really as a duty, right? Something that we, we, we ought to see to it that we, we make it happen. Um, and again, Scripture, maybe part of my wandering in this is because there is no clear command in Scripture that says, right, you must bless the food you eat. Um, but it is the clear pattern of Scripture, you see it, that's the pattern when people, uh, when, you, when bread is broken, that it is blessed. And Jesus models that for us here. Uh, and then there's also just the general principles as well. 1 Timothy 4.4, 4, he says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. He's talking about also, the, again, the transition into, uh, from the old to the new, uh, the ceremonial laws and the, 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 the food laws. Where he's saying, you know, we're, we have all these options, but make sure you do it with thanksgiving. Like, that is what sets it apart. That is what makes it holy. When we bless something, uh, we are giving thanks for it. We are, we are uh, um, communicating God's 
favor and pleasure in it. And so if we're going to eat something, um, it is good that we would bless it and give thanks to God for the food that he has given us. Um, so if you aren't doing that, uh, I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm admitting to you as, as a congregation, I haven't done that well. Uh, especially not, and, and it also it can be challenging as a family. Uh, and you just have, like, they're like birds and like seagulls when you throw a french fry and it's just like they're squawking and it's just, you gotta, I mean, that's what happens when you don't establish the, uh, the discipline and the structure. And so, um, so I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm recognizing that it takes intentionality and it takes um, discipline. It takes being uh, clear and instructing our, our families. But I think it is good. And, and we see Christ. Again, that's not the, the whole por- purpose of this, but it is a side point that we can make here. So Jesus, he blesses it, which again is... Uh, we see, uh, and he similarly does with the wine, he gives thanks, blessing and giving thanks. We're, uh, we're giving thanks to God. God is the one who blesses the food. Um, and so we look to him for that. And then he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples. Uh, and so uh, this is just one area. There's two areas today I want to just suggest that I believe we can, as I was going through this text, and I've said this before, actually, I've taught... As we've, we've looked at the Lord's Supper, I think we're going through the 1689 uh, Baptist Confession, what it teaches on the Lord's Supper. And, uh, and I, I've, I've shared these thoughts before. Um, I've also communicated, uh, I'm, I'm not in any rush, and I, I'm, I, I caution against becoming uh, legalistic and, uh, and too, um, well, just overly uh, hyper externally focused on the externals here of what what we are actually like the, the, the physical commands of what we are actually doing but one area that I think we could improve here in terms of being in harmony in accordance with what does Jesus actually tell us to do in the Lord's Supper what I mean it's it's one thing to understand and it's more important that it be that what we're doing here, that we understand it and that we, we are receiving it, God's grace that is offered to us through faith in Christ and his death. And that the, that the bread and the cup would, would be a grace to us and helping us to, to solidify that reality in our life. But what about the just basic external of like what we eat, what we drink? And just... Just look at the text. Jesus broke the bread and he gave it to the disciples. We don't break the bread and we don't and give it to eat to, to the disciples. And I I had to ask, well, why not? I guess because it's convenient. I, I don't know. Um, I think it's it's not a and it's not a it's not just coincidence that Jesus does this. It's representative of his body. Well, what happens to his body? His body is broken. Uh, in the crucifixion, it's not. Bro- we know from John, he says, not a bone was broken in fulfillment of Psalm 34, but his flesh was broken. It was ripped apart by whips, right? And the crown of thorns. I mean, if you could ever had, a, if you ever had an image of, of of a broken human being, it was the Isaiah 53 description of the man that you can't even recognize who he is anymore, right? And so, so there is a. I think we're missing the blessing. Uh, we're, we're we're selling ourselves short of just the simple blessing that is given to us uh, in following Jesus 
what he models here for us and commands us to do, to, uh, to bless the bread and to break it in front of, in front of us here as a, as a reminder of what Christ has done for us. It, it displays and communicates the historical reality that Christ's real, physical, human body was broken for us. And so Jesus breaks the loaf of bread. Now, uh, especially before I get to the next one, I'll, I'll explain. Does that, I mean, today we're going we're gonna to go through communion as we normally have. Um, I, I think I shared this, I, I know I sh- I'm pretty sure I shared this um, when we went over in Sunday school, maybe a year or two years ago now. Um, but moving forward, what's the plan? Well, I guess I, I would hope that you would share that conviction with me. Um, and, um, and to some degree, I, I, my prayer is that you would not be apathetic about the, the instructions that the Lord gives us with that. And uh, in that if you have any concern or reason as to why, we sh- why that wouldn't work or why that wouldn't be a good idea, uh, to let me know. I mean, at the, at the end of the day, I want to shepherd you through this. I want to be your, a, a, a teacher to you. And I want you to understand, again, that's kind of what I'm doing here is uh, searching myself. I want to know, why do, we, uh, why do I do what I do? Why do we do what we do? And so if I can be of any help to you, in that, if what I if what I've said doesn't make sense, then let me know. But just to be clear, like if anything, if if this doesn't make sense to you, it's because you're thinking too hard. Uh, this is I'm just this is really basic. Jesus broke the bread in front of them and gave it to them, so that's why I think we should break the bread and give it to them. Very very simple. And that's actually what we're going to see with the Lord's Supper too. Is and what I love about it. Sometimes I feel like. Um, Sometimes I wonder, like, am I really appreciating the Lord's Supper? Like, people, some people talk about it like it's this, like it's, and it, it, it is, and it's like this profound mystery and um, very solemn and, uh, and holy, sacred meal. And, and there's, there's a sense in which I don't want to take away from that. That's true. But I don't know if, if, if any of you ever feel this way, but I'm like, it can also just feel like very uh, simple. Like we're, we're eating a piece of bread. We're drinking a little cup. Um, and I want to suggest you don't need to feel guilty about that. As long as you are observing and you're discerning the body and you're, you're receiving it in a worthy manner in faith in Christ, I think it's supposed to be simple, actually. <laughs> like that's the point. Like, like our faith in Christ is as basic as eating the bread, our daily bread, and, and drinking the, and being hydrated and being sustained. Like, uh, it, it's a reminder that your spirit, your life in Christ is not, doesn't have to be this grand, like, super intense theological web of, of all these different connections that, you know, sets you apart from everybody else. It's this very common meal that he gives us that, like, the youngest to the oldest among us can all, can, can receive and partake of and be assured uh, of our salvation in Christ. Um, so, so don't let that take away from uh, the sense in which it is, it is sacred, it is set apart, and that Christ does set it apart as being different from your average meal. Um, but he is drawing from the commonality of it. He is drawing from this the everyday, ordinary reality that, that bread uh, and, and wine is to us, that, that it would 
help us in our faith in a very um, tangible and just day-to-day uh, encouragement and, and way. And so Jesus breaks the loaf of bread. He offers it to his disciples and he says, Take, eat, this is my body. And again, unlike some traditions today, Jesus does not place uh, the bread on each of their mouths, we see, but he presents it to them and he commands them. It's a command. He says, take, eat, this is my body. So again, a very tangible, active expression of your internal faith in Christ, which is initiated in you by the Spirit of Christ, to take. I mean, you don't, you're not contributing to anything. This is Christ. It's his salvation. He's saying, take, like, right, receive it. And so that's where I, again, that's why I think there is, um, why we do it, we do well to have people take from the, as we pass it around. But I also think that's why I, I, I want to more often uh, take, take up the practice of having you to come forward and, and take of the bread and of the wine. Just as, again, as a, uh, a, a very elementary uh, aid to you in understanding the, the very basics of the gospel of Christ. So when Jesus said, and we're going to have to just touch on this here, take, eat, this is my body. There's, so there's, there's a lot here in jam-packed, like in every statement that I just want to briefly touch on. Jesus said, this is my body. He was referring to the bread as being representative of his body. Similarly referring to the wine in verse 28, Jesus said, this is my blood. This is my blood, he says. But of course, uh, if you've been around for very long, you know that there is much confusion throughout the history of the church over how to properly interpret that phrase. This is my body. This is my blood. Uh, and, th- and this became a major issue between the reformers. In the, in the 15, the 1600s, 1500s mostly, where, the many, where blood was spilt, um, human blood. Uh, well, yeah, you can get confusing there with the, the different, with the overlapping of terms. But it became a major issue um, with the reformers in the Roman Catholic Church and the, with the Roman Catholic Church teaching the doctrine called transubstantiation. Trans substantiation and that is that the bread actually becomes the body of Christ substantially in substance um, and that the wine becomes his blood and the consequence of this then some I mean some in terms of I'm, I'm really over uh, summarizing this but at the very least consequently if you're going to hold to that doctrine uh, this is then uh, when you then gather around the communion, the sacrifice of Christ's blood, body and blood is again being offered as a sacrifice for sin. Right? If, if it's becoming the body and the blood of Christ and then it's being offered as a sacrifice uh, for sin uh, again and again and again. Whether or not they, they, they would word it that way, it, that's, that's the, the logical consequence of what is taking place with that base assumption of, trans- of, of, of his body, um, of the bread becoming his body, the, the wine becoming his blood. 
And, and the reality is, is that, again, I'm not, today we're not going to go into all of that, but it, it is, it's a superstitious and blasphemous and, and idolatrous teaching when, it, when you really get into it and, and, and all that it, it entails. Um, but it, particularly, you can see where it comes out of this, this superstitious mindset. This really, it's, I, I, whether this is actually how it developed but, or, or this, it's just um, something that I can see looking back at history in the different like, pagan religions, um, it's very much of a pagan idea to believe um, that's, that, um, well, that, that matter, that physical things can be either good or evil. And that there can be like an actual changing of, of the physical substance. Um, and, and, and so this goes both ways. I mean, this is, and so the Catholic Church does this with transubstantiation, but like to, when it comes to even with evil, to think that there is something inherently evil in any kind of object, physical object, um, is a pagan idea. That's not the God, that's not the worldview of the Bible in which he makes, he makes the world good. It's the spirit, it's the man, it's, it's, it's us who can make, use things for evil purposes. It, um, and, and, and it's, um, when it comes to... Uh, like the demonic influences on, on objects and different things, on idols, right? Peter says, what is an idol? It's nothing. But not to the person who is under the influence of, of the, 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 the demonic, right? And so, so the real power is not in the idol. The scripture is clear again and again and again. There is no power in a, in a piece of wood uh, that was, you know, and, and made and shaped and formed in a certain fashion. Uh, the, the evil, the, the demonic, is in the heart of man, and 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 uh, right, and in the the lies and the deception that surrounds these things. And so, it's uh, the, it's similar on the opposite side when we attribute something that, in, in with, when it comes to transubstantiation, we're trying to put something good. We're trying to put literally the body and blood of Christ, uh, something that is supposed to be holy, into uh, something that is. Truly bread and, and truly wine. And so this is, and I, I'm not, I don't want to go too much into this, but I think we understand that, that when, when Jesus says, this is, it can mean literally, this is, right? This is my body. Or uh, throughout scripture, we have plenty of examples where this is, would have a symbolic equivalence, Right? And uh, Jesus calls himself the vine. He calls himself the door, uh, a fountain, a rock. He is called the Lamb of God. But we know he's not actually a vine. We know he's not actually a door, right? He's, he's, he's using symbolic equivalence. It's the context that tells us that. It's the context that makes that, that clear. And so I think if you look at this context... Right, I mean, technically, and I push some people on this. I have a, a, a Roman Catholic relative, and I mean, if we really want to get literal, like really literal with this, this is my body. Well, so is he talking about like? Let's get literal about this. What is this? Like, was it that piece of bread that Jesus literally had at that time that we we got to go back and we got to find wherever this piece of bread is so that we can. It can, we can have his body, right? Like how you're just playing word games at that point. If we approach this and we just think of how the disciples would have understood what Jesus is saying to them as, 
as he's sitting there, right? He's, he hasn't even been crucified yet. He hasn't even gone to the cross yet. And he's saying, this is my body. And he, and he says, this is my blood. Uh, how else would they have understood it but that he's speaking uh, symbolically of, of these things as pointing to, to his death? They'd have no other way of interpreting what Jesus was saying here uh, other than that. I, I, just, I can't see any other way for that. In Hebrews 9.26, he says, as for, uh, But as it is, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Jesus, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And then, of course, verse 29 that we're going to get to in a moment also just reaffirms the fact that Jesus is saying he bodily, even though there's, it's very clear in the spirit, Christ is going to be present with his people. But there is a clear gap here where he's saying bodily, physically, substantially, he will not be with us. Uh, within the Lord's Supper itself that we see in verse 29. Um, that there, it's, it's not until he drinks it with us in the Father's kingdom. Uh, that we will have his physical presence, his bodily presence with us. And so the bread represents Christ's body broken for us. And now we consider the wine, uh, which we see represents Christ's blood, which was shed for us. And he took a, a cup, and when he had given thanks, he, give it, he gave it to them. And so this is where, again, I, just, I offer one more uh, critique of our observance of the Lord's Supper, um, when we hold up our practices in light of the text and what, what is given to us here. Uh, and, what, and what I see here, and I, I do remember I brought this up a couple of years ago. Again, uh, I'm patient. And, uh, but I, again, I don't want patience to be taken advantage of or, or um, become, that we become apathetic about what the Lord has instructed us and given to us. But the cup here contains wine. Not grape juice. That, that is, that's simply what he gives us. That's simply what he institutes here. Uh, the Greek word comes out in verse 29. In verse 29 he says, I, I tell you I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And literally the, the word for this, the fruit of the vine there is that which grows of the grapevine and and in some sense, I know, and I've, I've thought through this as well, well, it's like, well, grape juice is from the grapevine. Um, but this was a clear idiom, like an expression that they would use that was, uh, would, would be a reference to wine, uh, to, to fermented grape juice. Um, and yes, certainly, uh, there is, the argument is made that that was, just like bread is the staple food of today, so wine was the staple drink of that day, and wine isn't necessarily the staple drink of today. Um, but again, I mean, we got to be careful as, as to how much we overcomplicate this and, 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 and try to play word games here. And just at what point do we say, let's just do what Jesus said, right? And to honor him. And because maybe he has, again, as we saw with the breaking of bread, he has a reason for it, whether we even know it or not. 
Um, the context of the letter to the Corinthians uh, in 1 Corinthians 11 makes it very clear that they were using wine, uh, not grape juice, because the problem G- uh, Paul was addressing there was that they were getting drunk around the communion table uh, as some were going ahead and drinking others and, and, and not uh, waiting for others behind them. And so the solution, though, we see there was not to get rid of the wine. What does he say? Uh, essentially, the, the solution was exercise self-control. Don't get drunk was his command. Um, think about others outside of yourself and, on, and, think, and discern the body of Christ. Think about what this, what this represents. This isn't about you and you alone and, and your own appetite. This is about the body of Christ. And this is what the, again, I just, the reason I'm uneasy with it, again, is because I see it in Scripture. I also see that the church practiced for, for 1,900 years. Uh, so well beyond, like, the kind of the cultural aspect, this is, just, this is what the church has always done until the 1800s, the middle of the 19th century, when uh, the feminist movement is really picking up and you have the prohibitionists who bring this really this legalistic mindset uh, towards alcohol into the churches. Like it's a legalistic mindset of uh, essentially what the problem was was that was men getting drunk, the husbands who were abdicating the responsibility uh, and, and and living in sin and drunkenness. And so instead of instead of pastors doing their job. Instead of congregations doing their job and rebuking the drunkards in their congregation and disciplining them, right, and dealing with the sin in, their, in the, the, the families and their churches, while we're going we're gonna, to, uh, again, we're going to usurp that or go around that, and we're going to go to the government, and we're going to ask the government, can you do something about this, right? It's a lot easier for us to say, well, Romans 13, uh, government says it, so you, you, gotta, you can't do that. Right? And that's, you had the, pro, the, the, oh, it starts with the T. Uh, prohibition. Temperance. Temperance movement. Um, where it becomes a matter of legal, legality. Um, but that's, that's really how it was brought into the church. Uh, it was essentially... Um, like the church was abdicating its responsibility and, and its authority to uh, to deal with the sin of drunkenness, and so so like the Pharisees, we're going to put up a fence around. We're not going to actually we're we're not going to just keep the command. We're going to put a fence around it so that, uh, that that God didn't put around it, so that nobody can even touch the stuff. But you actually you never dealt with the sin issue. You never dealt with the the rebellious heart that has no self control. And is only seeking what, you know, what will satisfy his own belly. Um, so that's, that's not how we, we deal with sin here, whether, whether, whether it comes to drunkenness or, I mean, anything uh, that we would seek to put fences around. And then there was, and so there was a very, in the, during, while this is happening, there was a very, I would say, smart, maybe stealthy, I don't know. I don't know his motives. But we could say there was a, 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 a sharp-thinking businessman of the name of Welch, right? And he seized the opportunity, and he made a lot of money 
by producing Welch's grape juice after he figured out how to, how to pasteurize it without having to ferment it, to preserve it. And so, again, I, just, I think it's very clear. And then, and the, the, the reality is, is that I don't understand, I can see why we're tempted or why, why we've gone this way to some degree. I understand the different things politically. Um, but as Baptists, I also don't understand why. As Baptists, we, are, we, are, we pride ourselves on being literal. Like, why, why do we have to baptize them? Why do we have to dunk them all the way in the water? Because that's what the text says. Right? Like, and, and in the end, I, don't, I, I, am scared, I am worried. And the reason, again, so why aren't we doing this now? Right? Or why have I been so patient? Again, I think there is a danger in that, like, the focus of this text is not on, like, that we get all caught up on what is the bread, what is the drink. Uh, and, even, and even with baptism, I think there's a danger in which Baptists, we idolize. Like, we, 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 make, we become superstitious about, well, if they didn't go, what if they didn't go all the way? Does it really count? It's like, no, you're missing the point. Is, it, is, it the, is the power in the Word of God and their faith and the promises of the Word of God? Is that where the power lies? Or is it in the external uh, symbol? It's like, so yes, I want it, I think... I, I, I want to get the external symbol right. Why wouldn't we? And I believe God is honored by it. And, and again, I think we rob ourselves short when we get the, the external uh, symbol wrong. But I also, I, and the, so the reason why I am patient with this, and I don't want to um, push it and force it upon anyone, is that I don't want us to be so caught up on the external, because that's really easy. Like, uh, we can, that's, that's the, the threat of legalism. We can, I can very easily force us all to do is go a certain way and we miss the intent. We miss the heart. We miss the power, right? Uh, like we have a, we'll, we'll have the form of godliness according to what I believe the text says, but we won't have the power of godliness, which is uh, only uh, applied by faith through the work of the Spirit working together uh, among us here. So my prayer is that as, as I'm reading this, that you'll, if you haven't considered this before, that you would, and that the Spirit would lead you and convict you, that you would look at the text yourself and just consider, again, the simplicity of uh, God's Word and, and how He directs us in this. And that, again, if, if we can't get the very, the very basic, simple part of it uh, right, then uh, you know, how can I expect us to move on to the actual meaning and the deeper intention of it? But that being said, that is, what my, that is my heart's desire. And I do believe that in the end, uh, as we, like today I don't want me saying this to be a distraction from you, as the, the juice that we have is juice, it's not wine. Um, again, where is the power? Where is the, the, the promise given? Is it in the substance of the drink itself? No, it's in, the, in, it's in Christ giving it to us by His Word. And so, so I, do, I don't want that to hinder you today from receiving the bread and, and the cup in, in a manner um, that will strengthen you and glorify Christ and His body today. I, don't think it, I think that would be unnecessary for it to get in the way of that. So again, especially for that one. I understand there's, there's reasons why people would be um, hesitant with that. Uh, some people will say, well, what about people who are tempted to get drunk? Again, that's a good question. And that, that person needs to repent. And they need to be helped. They need to be counseled. They need to be brought alongside. And, and so the command is, really for them, is um, like control yourself. 
So if we pour a little cup, if that's going to tempt you to be to have you have a little bit here, and then you're going to go somewhere else, well, we need to like we need to work through that with you. I I do know some churches they they have both. They'll offer both and uh, like a, one that's clearly juice and one that's clearly wine. But I'm really hesitant with that because that's again we're missing the symbolism that it's one we're we're partaking of the same cup, the same drink. And so I'd rather um, maintain that, whatever it is, that we are all partaking of the same cup. To me, that's, that is more important. And I would rather leave this teaching with you and, that, and leave the Spirit to work and to, to move us together by the same Spirit. Um, and um, and bring, bring your questions, bring your concerns to me. And I, I trust that the Lord will lead us together to, to glorify Him in this. Uh, our, our standard... Uh, changing, changing what our Lord instituted and commands is not excused by the uncontrollable appetites of a few people. It, it is not the commands of God which must change and bend to man, but man must bend to the commands of God, is what I'm saying. And so our, our standard of faith and practice, right, how we worship, is not based upon the sins or the sensitivities of men, but it's based upon the Holy Scripture. And so I move on here. It says he, he, he took, takes the cup. Now we get to the real, like what really matters here. He takes the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. Now, I want you to hear this. Uh, Although I warn every week, I warn against receiving the bread and the cup without a sincere heart of faith. And I I sincerely say, like, uh, uh, I want to scare you away from the table. If you're, if you are, if you are not in Christ, if you have, if you do not believe in him, and you just and you feel tempted to, to stay away. Like, don't eat and drink condemnation upon yourself, God's judgment upon yourself. Um, but what I want you to see here is he says, drink of it, all of you. And that this is not a command that is just given, goes out to a select few. So two things here. Do not think because you have never participated before that this command does not extend to you today. In other words, right, you haven't been baptized, you haven't, you haven't committed yourself publicly to Christ, and you've never, you've been hesitant to receive, and so you're not even listening to me right now. You're like, this doesn't even apply to me. Well, I'm telling you, this is a command that he gives, and he says, drink of it, all of you. In other words, you need to hear his command today. If you don't, if you refuse to believe what I'm, what he's saying to you, or you, you're not understanding it, you're not, you're not taking it in, then don't. Like, don't try to force that. Don't, don't go around that. But do you hear what I'm saying? He commands you, all of you, drink of it, all of you. And so, if you hear the call, if you hear his voice today, calling out to you, inviting you to drink of the to eat of the body of Christ and to drink of His blood by faith, then 
then repent of not of your of your neglecting this until now and put your faith in Christ and walk in him and the life that he offers you in, in him. And then but secondly with that also I want to say do not refuse the bread and cup because you're convicted of your sin. Like you come here and you feel guilty for your sin. And so you're going to say, well, I, I can't come in a worthy manner today. No. Repent of your sin. You're guilty. Okay, the spirit is at work. Or, or maybe it's the enemy. And he's cast, sending lies at you. Or maybe the, the enemy, the accuser, he's right. And he, he's, he's saying, you did this. Or I know what you did this week. Or I know that thought you had. And so what you need to do is you need to confess that. Don't, don't hide from the table here because you're not worthy, but confess your sins. Repent your, of your sin. Confess it to God and believe in the mighty power of Christ's redemption that is represented for us here today. He says, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Um, and so, again, I'm, I'm running out of time here, but I mean, God has always ratified his covenants with blood. Uh, all throughout the Old Testament and now here in the, in the New Covenant. Um, for example, in Exodus 24, verse 8, in the, the Sinai Covenant on Mount Sinai, it says, Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people and he said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. Uh, and, and even if practically, if you just think of it, the shedding of blood alerts us to the costly and permanent nature of the agreement that has been made. Covenants, right, it's not just a, a, con- a contractual agreement, though there is, that is in, in a sense what God is doing. He's, he's agreeing, he's, he's binding himself to us. And he's doing it with the shedding of blood, which, again, when you shed blood, I don't know if you ever have had to do that or had the opportunity, but it's quite a, I don't, I don't, I, I, I don't do it often. So I don't know like how butchers feel, like or the priests who did this like day by day by day. If you ever become callous and hardened to it, but whenever I have come to, around to it, it's it it's it's just you you have this heavy, weighty feeling of that life has just been taken, life has been lost. So I think there is a significance in that. The shedding of blood marks the point of no return. When the throat of the bull or the lamb has been cut and the blood is pouring out, right? There's no going back uh, to what has been set now in motion. And that's, that's the kind of covenant that God makes with us. There is no going back uh, with the covenant that has been bought by the blood of Christ for your sins. And the covenant there, Jesus in particular is referring to the, what we call sometimes the new covenant or the covenant of grace. But by the way, that covenant goes back to uh, right to, to Genesis. It's not ratified until the blood of Christ is shed. It's not, right, it's not, it's not put into effect until that point. But how was Abraham justified? By faith, right? And by faith in the promise of God and, and, and the, the deliverance he would bring. And so, so I, I'll call it the new covenant, the, the, the covenant of grace, Jeremiah 31 talks about this covenant and the blessings of the covenant. We see there in Jeremiah 31 includes a new heart, regeneration, um, uh, which is this, this new life 
having the law of God written on our hearts and, and the forgiveness of sins. And so God's covenant with Abraham was a covenant that he made with the Hebrew nation. Okay? It was a covenant he made with the Hebrew nation and contained within God's promise and his covenant to Abraham that God, he was saying that he would use the seed of Abraham from within this nation that God was going to keep and preserve, that he would use the seed of Abraham to bring forward and and bring to its fulfillment this covenant of grace, this new covenant to the elect people of God from whom all, from, who would come from all nations forming this new covenant community, which is the church, the gathering of the regenerate people of God, as again, as I believe Jeremiah 31 really helps us to understand. So whereas the, the covenant with Abraham, which is so before Christ, there's other covenants as well that we see, but the covenant of, of Abraham before Christ included both the regenerate, which is those who believe. To be regenerate is to be, to be made alive. So it included those who believed in the promises of God. And it also included the unregenerate, right? Those who were of the seed, the physical seed of Abraham. And the great turning point in the redemptive history in the ratification of the covenant of grace and it's being manifest and revealed, the mystery hidden from age being revealed includes the intended result of the new covenant community being exclusively the regenerate people of God, the bo- those who are born again in Christ. And if you're born again, your sins are forgiven. That's what he's saying here. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So God has covenanted with the disciples of Christ, with, with, with you who believe in Christ, that your sins have been forgiven. This is the promise of the Lord's Supper. That, that he says in Hebrews 9, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Well, now we have the bread and the wine representing to us, testifying to us the death of Christ, the shedding of blood. And in them, we also, we are given an interpretation and the explanation of of what the purpose of, of Christ's death was and its meaning was for us, how it is applied to us. So are you struggling with the assurance of your salvation? then take the Lord's Supper today. Believing that the Lord, what the Lord has done for you as a visible and tangible assurance of your acceptance and forgiveness as you receive the bread and drink of the cup, that it's not by your own righteousness and your own religious sacrifice and ritualism, but by the pure and spotless sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ that is offered to you. We're not going to get to go down. I also wanted to talk briefly. He says, for this blood is, is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. I'll just throw this out there. He doesn't say it's poured out for all universally, regardless of your faith. 
And we see that consistently throughout Matthew. He speaks of the many. That is, that is the, the chosen people of God, the elect. Yes, Jesus, the, the, the gospel goes out to all. Um, but his blood, the covenant that is, being sh- that is being cut here, is given for the many. And, I, and now, now how do we know that you're one of the many? Well, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him. If you believe in him, you are one of the many. But there are also many people, right, who don't believe. And so this covenant is, is made with the many who would believe in Christ. <clears throat> so the bread and the wine all point back to the death of Jesus. And they've commun- they communicate to you from the very word and command of Christ that you have your that you have your sins forgiven and are sealed by your inclusion in the new eternal covenant. And then thirdly, we see that that Christ will return to feast with us in the Father's kingdom. Verse 29, he says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So the Apostle Paul interprets this for us, and I, I read this every week to you should be very familiar. But he's basically given us his, his take on it. And he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Apparently, I don't know how much to make of this, but it's worth noting. I think it could be helpful to, you, to your understanding of this, what he's saying here. Uh, apparently in the liturgy of the, the Passover, there were four cups. And again, I, I say I'm hesitant because when you, when you dig into the history it's like, and, and the, the, the rabbinical texts, there's a lot of conflict. And uh, it's not authoritative like Scripture. There's not one text to which you can say this is for sure what they did. So you've got to be careful with it. But the, the, there tends to be this um, understanding that there was four cups that they would have during the Passover meal. That that's, at that point, that's what they were doing. And that they'd eat the Passover lamb, then they'd have the third cup, which, which I believe is what he's having here. And then they'd sing a hymn. And then after, that, after they would have the fourth cup, and the fourth cup would bring, bring it to its completion. And so it looks like that this is the third cup because it's preceded by the eating and then it's followed by the singing of a hymn. Verse 30 says, and, they went, uh, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out and, uh, to the Mount of Olives. And so if this was the case, it doesn't look like they had the fourth cup, possibly. And that might be what Jesus is, then is re- alluding to here, to when he will have the fourth cup with them. He will, he will bring it all to its culmination, to, to, every, to where this is all headed towards when he drinks it anew with them in the Father's kingdom. Either way, whether that is the, what is going on or not, the conclusion of the Lord's Supper here, looking back to the death of Christ, now in conclusion points us forward to the new heavens and the new earth. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And so we eat, we drink, and we know that our sins are forgiven. Just as surely as we know that I ate a piece of bread and I I had a drink of good grape juice. 
As surely as we tasted that and as, as we consumed it, we know your sins are forgiven. We receive the assurance and the seal of our salvation. And then without fear, we get to look forward to the second coming now. Do you see how that, it all fits together? And, it, and it, you, it, you don't get one without the other. There's no fear of judgment at the second coming now. For the believer who receives in, in faith this meal. It, it ought to be, and some, for some it's not, because they're dead, totally dead and, and apathetic, but it ought to be a terrifying thing to look forward to the coming of Christ. But for the believer who has received, who has eaten of his body and drank his blood and faith, we can look forward to it with joy and praise and thanksgiving. Because we have Christ's word on it. We have his body broken. We have his blood testifying to it today. That your sins are forgiven. We can come to the Lord's Supper with joy. And we're going to do that. We're going to sing, uh, sing a hymn first. And then, uh, and, but we can come to the Lord's Supper with joy in your hearts. Knowing that every sin you've ever committed and will commit has been done away with on the cross and removed as far away as the east is from the west. Not because of anything you've done, but it's all of Christ and what He's done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You, we thank You, we thank You for... What is man that you are mindful of him. And I think, when I, as I was mentioning earlier, when I think of the Lord's Supper and the, and the bread and the cup and just to some degree the simplicity of it, of how you, you stoop down to our level. You don't... Uh, you, you, you see us and you meet us where we're at with our understanding, Lord, and, and that you, you, you give us this meal as a very basic, and clear, and straightforward reminder and proclamation and assurance of the salvation that you have purchased for us in Christ. And yet, and in doing so, in stooping down to our level to communicate these things to us, you are not made any less awesome and holy and powerful uh, and, and just and righteous. And so we pray today as we consider these things and are reminded of them, Lord, we thank you for it. And I pray as we, um, as we consider some of the kind of peripheral aspects of the Lord's Supper, Lord, that your spirit would direct us and give us wisdom um, and that we could, we would stand confidently and wholly upon your word on these the things that we do whether it's from the Lord's Supper or, or in, the, in the prayers that we give and the, the, in the preaching that is given just in all that we do to worship you Lord that it would be according to your word but that, that, and that Lord that we would uh, that today and as we, as we prepare for the Lord's Supper in a moment again that you would just that you would refresh our souls today as we cast our, our hope and our faith uh, anew 
uh, upon Christ. Lord, we praise you that uh, again that it was you that that it was as we as we receive as we receive the Lord's table, it is not a bloody offering, Lord, that the blood has been shed, that, that the work has been done, uh, and Lord, that it is finished is the reminder and the, the assurance we are given today. It is finished. And so if it isn't finished in, any, in anyone's heart today, the applying of that finished work, Lord, I pray for the restless heart here today, that you would, you would apply that finished work by the power of your Holy Spirit through faith today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.